This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The motto of Asset School is that every child learns differently. It offers a program for gifted and talented students and those who have dyslexia and other language-based learning differences. As families have been anxious to learn about changes in the classroom for the fall, we've been exploring how schools across the state are preparing for the students' return. We talked to Ryan Mesa, who is head of school at Assets, about its approach to coping with COVID-19. During the school year, we had a distance learning plan that we were really pleased with, and, and it involved a lot of connections with students. So we were you know, wanting to make sure that they were still having their academic needs and that while recognizing that their social-emotional lives were equally important so we carved out a lot of time you know daily and weekly for kids to have one-on-one time with their teachers so that they could check in and and you know that could be used academically as well if they if they needed something but but really it was it was more to make sure that socially and emotionally they were they were doing okay and that we could support them this summer for example you know we did not bring everybody back for a large summer school program but we did continue to do online learning and at the high school that was in classes but at the k-8 that was individual tutoring and that's been it's been really well received so that you know kids still get to have this one-on-one time with their teachers who they really love and miss and at the same time they're they're advancing you know they're the summer is a time when oftentimes our kids lose some ground with their peers um, uh, because, you know, they maybe have dyslexia or just, you know, dysgraphia. And so it's important that they get consistent instruction in those areas. It's always been a really core value to us that, you know, we have to personalize and individualize instruction as much as possible. So um, we typically have eight to one or seven to one teacher to student ratios, even through the high school. And that really allows us to meet kids where they are. And again, sort of meet them where they are intellectually and academically, but also socially and emotionally. And it just allows us to be really responsive to them. What is your plan for the fall? We have every intention of reopening. We want to be together in person. We certainly have a plan if if the circumstances force us to to be apart for some some short period of time. But our goal is to be together. And, And so our our low teacher student ratios to start with has been really helpful because we have Um, We have the space to spread out, and we have two campuses, and both campuses have room for for kids to have even smaller groups when necessary. And then we're doing, I think, what what lots of schools are doing, which is, you know, the younger the kids, the more difficult it's going to be for them to adhere to all of the safety mitigation strategies. So we're really putting them in cohorts, sort of these school ohana bubbles where they are largely interacting with the same group of kids throughout the school day. And then as kids get older and they can assume more responsibility for some of the the personal hygiene measures like masks and social distancing, that's going to be the point of emphasis for us. So how are you looking at masks? You know, just the other day there was a story about how the kids in the Louvre Museum, the mask age would be 11 and up. You know, yeah. and so it, it's kind of uh, you're, you're trying to figure out. Okay, what should the policy be? I know, I know. I think this is a this is a uh, an issue that all schools have wrestled with, and certainly we've talked with each other. But I would say, you know, we are really using the guidance from the CDC and American Academy of Pediatrics, which is, you know, to try to mass students as much as is feasible. So, you know, certainly we expect all of our older kids to wear masks. And then the younger ones, you know, we are going to advocate for that and ask that they do that and help them with that. Obviously, the ones who struggle with it, we're not going to respond to it as a behavioral issue. You know, it's more about helping and supporting and coaching, knowing that, you know, the smaller the child, the more difficult that's going to be. But it does allow us to have kids be closer to each other and, and feel more confident in that um, because we know that, you know, at the same time, when kids come back, they want to work together with other students, which we want to encourage. They want to play with other kids. And so the more comfortable they are with their masks on, the more, the more comfortable we are with them getting, getting close like that, which is, you know, really important for their social development. So you have enough space on your campus then to physically distance, what is it, the six feet? Yeah, they say, they say three to six feet, depending on how the students are arranged. So it depends a little bit on if they're facing each other um, or not. So we're, we're pretty lucky that, you know, we have, we have space to, to be able to do that in, in sort of all ways. But that's where, again, the masking is, is helpful when, when that becomes challenging or physical barriers, you know, like, again, like, like so many schools, we have invested in uh, plexiglass barriers where, 
that's really challenging, like bathrooms or the main office reception area and, and places like that. Anything else that you can share that you folks are doing differently for, you know, the gifted kids or the kids with dyslexia? Well, when you work with students who are gifted, I mean, one of the, the rules is to follow their passions and their interests. Their, their strengths often follow their interests and passions, and we want to make sure that we are, as parents and as teachers, the opportunity makers for, for kids because when a student struggles in school, oftentimes you will have a lot of people in that child's life who helps you identify that. You know, aunties and uncles and neighbors and pediatricians, and, and they help you understand that uh, a child isn't necessarily reading like his, his or her peers. But we at Assets, one of the things that we really value is spending an equal amount of time on where a child thrives and really helping him nourish those gifts and those talents. Um, because ultimately those those talents and gifts, they, they, they rule the day. They help you build resilience and grit that, that gets you through the really tough moments. And we make sure that no matter if we're in person or, or distance learning, we are, we are making sure that we honor that part of a child's life. You know, I can't help but think about Billie Eilish and, you know, how her family has been able to work with, you know, her special needs, you know, her disability, and then nurture the creative part of her brain. I mean, it was just amazing as I learned about her as a musician and what her parents have done to help nurture her gift. Yeah, we're, you know, we have so many stories like that throughout our time working with, with our students. Maybe they don't become uh, world-famous musicians, but, but certainly some of them do. And, 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 you know, sort of in all fields we have, we have these examples of kids who learn and think differently, and that often makes traditional school really challenging for them. But that really speaks more about school than it does the child, because the child is, is really exactly how he or she should be. And, and so you know, our job is to help, help them sort of find those areas of strength and really build on them. And you're right. I mean, whether it's music or the culinary arts or drama, or we have many students who really excel spatially and are, are fantastic at things like art and design. And so they, they go on to all kinds of really interesting and creative work. We're just getting, you know, through summer. Are there any tips that you can share? Sure. I mean, I think in a, in a very general way, certainly with all kids, I think the littler kids, even more so, they really are a barometer for family stress. And, and so we, I think we need to always be really mindful of the conversations that we're having in front of them and the news that we're consuming because they, they often will pick up on, on our stress levels. And again, students of all ages, though, really need that sense of safety. And, and the younger the child, the more they really benefit from consistent, predictable routines. And so even though it's the summer, I think those, that's something that as families we can do for our, our, our children is try to create some routines for them. Um, and, you know, hopefully that involves some pocket of learning. Again, I think for kids who learn differently, we don't want them to fall behind their peers or sort of lose all of the progress they made during the school year. So, so hopefully there is, and that can look different ways, whether you have private tutoring or you are reading books together as a family or there's something online that you really enjoy that's a learning tool for you, and then making sure that we're not focusing solely on remediation and we're not focusing solely on sort of where a child struggles at the expense of what he or she does well. So again, I would emphasize that we want to be opportunity makers for our kids and, and spend time allowing that child to really explore and work in areas that bring them joy and where they find themselves being strong, capable learners. And because there are probably families there that one parent or both might have lost their jobs, I mean, what are you folks doing for, like, financial aid? Yes, absolutely. I mean, certainly we, we are not immune to that. We've, we've been hard hit. And, you know, we made a decision as a school that we would make sure that nobody left the school last year because of finances. And so we helped families get through the remainder of that school year. And then moving into this school year, we have increased our financial aid budget to try to make sure that, again, everybody who loves the school and wants to stay at the school is able to, and that anyone who is just finding us and realizing that this is the educational home for them can come join us. You know, on any given year, we would typically have roughly a third of our parents on financial aid, and certainly this year, um, we anticipate that number going way up. We've had an unprecedented amount of financial aid requests, and again, we're trying to help as many families as possible because we realize that, you know, when a child struggles in school, the whole family goes on that journey and, and that, you know, this school 
for many families is, is not viewed as a luxury. It's really a necessity because we all need a place where our child is understood and accepted and affirmed. And, you know, I'm just really proud that Assets is able to do that for so many families. And then you folks have an auction that you normally do to fundraise. We unfortunately had to cancel our, our gala in March because, of course, COVID was hitting and we sort of saw what was coming and we said it you know, was not safe to bring a couple hundred people together. So we canceled it, but we are now ready to put it back online. Our virtual auction will begin on July 16th at 6 a.m., and it will wrap up at 5 p.m. on July 19th. And all proceeds from that virtual auction will go towards financial aid for this upcoming school year. Any of your listeners and any friends of Assets can go to our website, assets-school.org, and they can check out the online items and register for the auction. And we would, again, greatly appreciate that. It's really going to a wonderful cause to help families stay in the school or attend the school. That was Ryan Mesa, head of school for Assets, which offers a program for gifted students and others with learning disabilities. And now it's time to go to the BBC with the latest COVID-19 news. After months of downplaying the pandemic, Brazil's president tests positive for COVID-19. And Australia locks down the city of Melbourne for the next six weeks. This is the coronavirus global update on Tuesday the 7th of July. I'm Nick Miles. Brazilian President Bolsonaro tests positive for COVID-19. Australia places Melbourne under a six-week lockdown and a Spanish study cast doubt on the feasibility of herd immunity. We start in Brazil. Muita gente, eu, por exemplo, se não tivesse feito o exame, não saberia do resultado. E ele acabou de dar positivo. It turned out positive. The words of the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, who was wearing a face mask whilst he talked to reporters. Mr Bolsonaro repeatedly dismissed the coronavirus as a minor threat. Brazil has the second highest number of both COVID-19 cases and deaths in the world. Only the US has more. Katie Watson sent this report from Sao Paulo. He's one of the biggest deniers of the virus and now he's contracted it himself. He said that he had begun to feel ill on Sunday confirmed that he was taking the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine and said he was now feeling fine, that he had mild symptoms. From the very start, Jair Bolsonaro has downplayed the severity of COVID-19, calling it the sniffles and saying that if he was to get it, he'd feel very little, if anything at all. The World Health Organization has wished the Brazilian president a speedy recovery, adding that his test results showed the virus was still not under control. Australia has been among the world's most successful countries in containing the coronavirus outbreak, but the disease is spreading again. Millions of people in Melbourne have been ordered back into lockdown. The border between Australia's two most populous states has been closed as the country fights an infection surge. Shyama Khalil reports. Victoria's state capital has been ordered back to stay-at-home restrictions. For the next six weeks, five million people are expected to remain in their houses, except for necessary purposes such as going to work, school or grocery shopping. The state premier, Daniel Andrews, has said without reimposing the restrictions, the situation in Australia's second most populous city could spiral out of control. He blamed a sense of complacency among some for the current COVID-19 spike. The disease is also resurgent in Israel, where the director of public health has resigned as the country experiences a sharp rise in new cases, reaching more than a 1,000 a day. Sigal Sadetsky said her warnings had been ignored and that the government had opened up too quickly. Fresh restrictions have been ordered, including the closure of bars and gyms. Professor Eli Waxman is head of an advisory panel helping guide the government's response. We did uh, two major mistakes. One, we relieved the social distancing measures uh, too rapidly and without an orderly plan, uh, weighing properly the risks. And the second is that we did not build the capability for rapid suppression of outbreaks that are bound to occur when we resume normal activity by this testing, tracking and isolating. And without this capability, we were not able to control the new outbreaks and we are situation we are in today. Kenya's Ministry of Education says all primary and secondary schools will remain closed until next year because of the pandemic. 
The Education Minister said that there would be no final year exams in October and November. Schools are now expected to open in January and all students are going to repeat their classes. A Spanish study has cast doubt on the feasibility of herd immunity as a way of tackling the coronavirus pandemic. The study of around 60,000 people estimates that only about 5% of the Spanish population has developed antibodies. Benjamin Meyer is a virologist who wrote the report for the medical journal The Lancet. If we think about herd immunity, meant that we need to reach like 60 to 70 percent of infected or exposed people to reach a herd immunity. A country like Spain would go through this phase like six or seven times until they reach a level of herd immunity that would actually lead to a substantial reduction in cases and eliminate the virus. At the beginning of the pandemic, it looked like COVID-19 was a respiratory illness. Now we know it can also affect the other organs and it appears it can also short-circuit the immune system, working in a way that's similar to HIV. Dr Adrian Heyday is group leader at the Francis Crick Institute and professor of immunobiology at King's College London. He says that some of the treatments involving antiretroviral drugs used to treat HIV patients could be effective in tackling coronavirus. The basic research that has gone into detailed understanding of what people's immune systems look like in this disease is moving us from a place where we had general ideas to now where we've got some very specific ideas. And that always helps you in the design of improved treatment. So I'm very optimistic that this disease will get more manageable. And that's critical to reducing the global threat that the virus poses. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Le Jardin Academy with a message of appreciation to its teachers, staff, and families for their hard work and accomplishments throughout the distance learning experience. LeJardinAcademy.org. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. Coming up on the next on point simple soap, warm water, and at least 20 seconds. Hand washing can kill the novel coronavirus, and it seems like we've always been told about the importance of washing our hands. But you'd be surprised by how short the history of hand washing actually is among humans. We'll hear the story. That's coming up on the next On Point from NPR. Starting this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening with safety in mind on July 16th, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community with new weekend evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. What do Hollywood talents, Bette Midler, Kelly Hu, and Janelle Parrish have in common? If you said they were all born and raised in Honolulu, you're correct. Well-known actresses from Hawaii aren't limited to the three just named, though, and that's why we're quizzing you about another thespian. Today's mystery person was born in 1979, attended Mililani Waena Elementary, Wheeler Intermediate, and Mililani High School. She excelled at sports, competing on the cross-country, track, and field, and swim teams. She also planned to study veterinary sciences, but due to conf- financial constraints, pursued modeling in Asia instead. She got into acting, too, and soon got noticed by Hong Kong superstar Jackie Chan's management company. Uh, it signed her to uh, and, and trained her to work in the action genre. Success in the Cantonese market eventually led to roles in U.S. blockbusters, Live Free or Die Hard and Mission Impossible 3. For today's quiz, can you name this actress, model, and animal rights activist? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Usually during this time of year, outrigger canoe paddlers across the state would be spending their days practicing. On the weekend, they would cheer on their clubs as athletes ages 12 to 80 compete in regattas. During the first week of August, they would be racing in the state championship before transitioning to the long-distance season. But all that has changed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mike Atwood is the president of the Hawaii Canoe Racing Association, which includes six member associations, two on Oahu and one each on Kauai, Maui, Molokai, and Hawaii Island. He spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about the current state of affairs for paddling clubs. All the regatta season on all the islands has been canceled because of the COVID-19 virus. And uh, the majority of the long-distance races, partly because of the disease and partly because of the restrictions by the county and state governments as far as issuing permits, um, each of one of the events that the clubs and the associations try to put on need either a marine event permit or some type of a right of entry permit to the area where the event's going to be held. And uh, the state and the counties right now are not letting those uh, permits be signed and approved because of the current conditions. So right now all of our races, um, regattas and long distance, are on hold. And we're waiting to see that hopefully things will change and uh, all of our paddlers can start to get back into the canoes all though at this point some of the associations have been told by their counties and each county is doing it differently that they can get in and practice there's no racing allowed but minimal or excuse me minimal amount of paddlers can get into the canoes and do practices organized practices with um the recommended uh, protective guidelines social distancing face masks sanitizing all those as long as those are followed then the clubs um, can let their paddlers get back into the canoe so with social distancing guidelines being about six feet does that mean an outrigger canoe with six seats you're only looking about three people maybe two people inside yeah that's correct if you follow it to the rule and um, because each association uh, is governed by their county rules and each county is governed by um perhaps the state rules or perhaps by what the mayor thinks is right for each island. There's some uh, allowances there for team sports, not just outrigger canoe paddling, but with outrigger canoe paddling as an example, uh, the majority of the people in a six-person canoe all sit within probably three feet of each other. Uh, spaced out over most canoes are between 40 and 45 feet long. So the seating definitely would not allow the six-foot separation, but because the amount of time allotted to the canoes when they go out and practice, which is, I think, and again, it's different on each island. It ranges from a half an hour to an hour where you can be in the canoe. And then when you bring, when you come back in, you have to sanitize the canoe. And then it usually takes several people to pick the canoe up, so you wouldn't be able to socially distance there either. But you, at that point, the counties are saying, put on your face masks, which you don't have to wear while you're, while you're in the canoe exercising. But when you're taking the canoe out of the water after your your pow with your workout and you're, you're done sanitizing the canoe, the face masks have to be on. And then no social mingling afterwards. That's always a big part about rigor canoe paddling is a social aspect of seeing your friends and um, how you feel after a workout, all of that. But uh, that is no longer allowed because of the social distancing. So, And at that point, too, once you're in a group, you need to put on your face masks, face masks excuse me, and then uh, go wherever it is you're going after practice. The um, Molokai Hoi and the Nawahini Okekai are considered pretty much the, the championships of, of long-distance paddling. There's some other really good races, uh, long-distance races that the paddlers look forward to. Also, um, there's one on Kauai, there's a couple on Oahu, there's one from Maui to Molokai, there's one on the Big Island, and those are all part of the season, but the culmination of the season has always been for the Wahinis, the Nawahini Okekai, which is towards the end of September, and then the Molokai Hoi, which is always the first or second weekend in, in October. And a variety of reasons, 
uh, led to those cancellations. Some were economic ability for people to pay to travel, many of whom probably lost their, their jobs and their, you know, lost their, their revenue that they would need to be able to pay for the travel and the um, expenses while they were here. There were logistics problems with getting canoes from the different islands to Molokai, and then uh, after the Nawahine, getting them from Oahu to Molokai for the Molokai Hoi. So that was one of the conditions. And then another factor was because the majority of the worldwide outrigger canoe paddlers' seasons had been either suspended or canceled, they weren't able to train for a race of, of that length and also the physical condition that's needed to be in an event like that. So there were a number of different factors that led to the cancellation of both the Nabahini Okakai and the Molokai Hoi. So it sounds like, at least for 2020, we're powering things. What about for 2021, what are you looking at at this stage? Well, we certainly want to be optimistic. Not being able to get into the canoe at all is discouraging and, and frustrating, but it, it's certainly outweighed by the potential uh, outcome of getting people together and what what could happen but there's so many different variables right now that are uncertain and unsettled that we don't know for sure what will be happening in 2021 as i said we're optimistic and we hope things will fall into place uh, having a vaccine uh, having disease controlled in areas uh, not only within hawaii but uh, in areas around the world with people from there that want to travel to hawaii would definitely be a big step towards getting back to somewhat of a normal life. But uh, 2021 is still, it's still, you can make plans, but they can't be definite. And all we can do is wait and see as things develop what, uh, you know, how it impacts us and our sport, and not only our sport, but our, our personal lives. And throughout this whole thing, um, all of our paddlers recognize that paddling is a very big part of our life. It's a very important part. It's cultural, it's traditional, it's physical, it's fun. Uh, and we we certainly miss doing that, but uh, we recognize what is going on around us, and that's a lot bigger picture than outrigger canoe paddling. Maintaining canoe clubs is not an inexpensive endeavor. I know there's a lot of fundraising that's going on, and canoes cost a, a lot of money to maintain. And Are there any clubs that you're hearing from? Are they having any financial trouble or worried about that aspect? No, it's uh, I haven't heard yet. Uh, from any of the clubs, uh, which doesn't mean that it, it, it isn't potentially happening or has happened, but uh, there's just kind of a double-edged sword. When you don't have all of the activities and all of the demands that are placed on a club, you don't really need to raise as much money to be able to operate for that year. On the other hand, um, there's still, as you pointed out, with canoe maintenance and there's insurance that needs to be purchased, there's still expenses. And um, the clubs uh, uh, that have kind of planned ahead, not knowing that they were going to be experiencing something like this, but planned ahead financially, are, or should be in a fairly good position. But the majority of the clubs that I'm communicating with and, and aware of their their fiscal approach to 2020 and 2021 is they're just cutting way back on any expenses that uh, are not necessary. If um, they can hold off on fixing a canoe for a little while, knowing that it may not be needed, if they can hold off on some of the maintenance for their allows is keeping the, the grounds, keeping the facilities like that, that any of those things that might cost money, they're either finding ways to not have to spend the money or they're not having the expense occur at all. With the clubs that you're in contact with, what have you heard? What's the uh, common concerns or questions you hear from them? They get confused by what they see and hear in the media, and they um, look to us to try to give some type of guidelines and some type of structure, and we, and we do that as much as possible. But uh, the majority of them um, are just concerned with not being able to um, uh, be around or their friends and their, their families that paddle, getting the opportunity to get out on the ocean and, you know, the, the normal things that are part of outrigger canoe paddling. But uh, they also all recognize that this is something that none of us have ever experienced before, and we all kind of need to try as much as possible to figure out together how we can deal with it and different ideas come up as far as uh, training methods as far as things you can do with uh, some of the equipment while that while it's not being used so the majority of the clubs that I've been in touch with are just they're looking optimistically but they're also looking at it realistically that uh, they can only do what's allowed socially and physically and want to deal with that as much as possible and hopefully things will change so 
they're all optimistic um, that it is going to happen, but um, they just kind of kind of go with the flow and, and wait to see when they're given a green light to get back to somewhat of a degree of normalcy. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? I think what we're finding is um, the clubs are starting to rely on the cultural values of, of Hawaiian um, koa canoe racing and its um, respect for the sea and for the land and for each other and understanding that this is not a permanent thing, that we're going to be able to get through it. And as long as we're literally in the same canoe working together, we're going to be able to accomplish what we want to. And it's also given us a much better understanding of um, sometimes favorably, sometimes not, with how the government does things, how they communicate, how they deal with problems, how they um, give instructions and rules and requirements. And uh, it's all just kind of a learning process for all of us. So because the Hawaiian Canoe Racing Association has been around so long, we've got a really strong foundation of members who uh, know how to work with each other and understand our strengths and understand our weaknesses and work with all of that to, to move forward. That was Mike Atwood, president of the Hawaiian Canoe Racing Association. Another event uh, canceled was the International Va'a Federation Sprint Championships scheduled for August in Hilo. The event, which is held every two years, would have featured teams from several countries, including Tahiti, Australia, and Brazil. Hawaii last hosted the event in 2004. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, proudly supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years. FerraroChoi.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, how to turn a good idea into reality. It's not as though you have an idea and tomorrow you write a paper and you submit it to the journal and it's done. I'm the kind of inventor that's looking to make whatever amount of time we have in this world better. And so execution has always been part of it. When a good idea is not enough, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked with race organizers about the cancellation of many road race and swimming events here in Hawaii and the prospect of rescheduling them. We heard this on our talk backline. Hi, my name is Patrick Gallagher. I am on Kauai, and I'm a cyclist, and really every bike race that's here, including the Century Ride, is in danger of being canceled. And I'm just trying to find ways to challenge myself by riding around neighborhoods, riding, you know, for longer periods of time, different challenges that I can do just here on island instead of going to other islands for certain things. And Katie uh, Kasara wrote in from Hilo after our Kapuna long-term care show. Aloha, I tuned in a little late, but so much vital information was presented. My husband is in a private care home, and the question was posed about what if a client tests positive for COVID-19? Thank you so much for highlighting this critical subject in these days of pandemic. We also heard from Maria. Hi, this is uh, Maria Kayaga, a community care foster family home operator from the Big Island. I just want to express my gratitude to Ms. Jackie Gardner, the long-term care estate ombudsman here in the Big Island, by giving us the surgical mask in coming to distribute to the caregivers of the foster family home. But besides the surgical mask, we really need an N95 mask also to protect ourselves in case there is a client, a family member, or workers who will be affected with this virus. So I just want to express my concern on behalf of the other caregivers. Thank you so much and have a nice day. And thank you for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line at 792-8217. 
Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check segment gives us an update on the action during this compressed legislative session. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the big news is the uh, police bill passed by yeah, the Yeah, boy. <laughs> That's House Bill 285. This is legislation that has been before uh, the legislature for the last five years, but it it keeps getting killed, and the main reason is Shopo, the police union, opposes it. We can talk about that in a minute. But just some background here. 25 years ago, the same legislature actually granted an exemption to the state's police officers, all four county departments, regarding the public records law. And what it did is it closed off our ability, the public's ability, the media's ability, to see those disciplinary files of officers that were suspended for misconduct. And by the way, that misconduct could be very serious. And we at H, uh, at Civil Beat, almost at HPR, but <laughs> HPR mm-hmm. as well, we have chronicled a long list of bad cops. Most cops are good, but there's a lot of them. So uh, what that meant was that you were only going to find out the name of a police officer that was fired uh, long after that happened, after they went through the entire arbitration process, the union grievances and so forth. And we we have long felt that that was really a denial. Remember, this is the only public employee category in the state where this law applies. With the passage of HB 285, both in the House and Senate yesterday, that is no longer the case, assuming Governor Ige does sign the bill Now those names will be disclosed annually in the uh, reports that the county police departments give to the legislature. Now, I recall the union, Shopo, was Mm. saying, all right, we might agree to this, but we only want... uh the like the new names, right? The 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 new cases that come up. To yeah, there was language in there about you know maybe not looking back uh, and and releasing previous names. But Brian Black from the Civil Beat Law Center, which is actually separate from us, but we certainly consult him uh, on on stories like this, says you know in the long run, in the short run, really, uh, the public will have access uh, to uh, you know bad police officers, uh, people doing bad things. Shopo argued that this amounted to public shaming and. Boy, they really played um, hardball here. They paid for a full-page ad of the Star Advertiser. Yes, I saw saying that. Saying it should be, yeah, say it should be vetoed. All their arguments are up on their webpage. And then yesterday at the Capitol, even though the Capitol is shut down, right, you can't go in there uh, if you're a member of the media or the public because of COVID. The rotunda is still open, and there were police officers out of uniform and their supporters uh Rallying uh, against HB 285, the argument is that somehow this denies them due process. Uh, uh, but in fact, you know, a due process will be given for a police officer. But I think the most important thing here, and Chris Lee made this point, chair of the Judiciary Committee in the House, this is about making our police departments better to improve their level of integrity and really ultimately about making Hawaii a safer place to live. We all know about the problems with police nationally. While things haven't been as pronounced here, we do have some serious incidents of bad police behavior in the islands. Right. And, uh, you know, we don't, I guess, we don't really like the secrecy. You know, we want transparency and we want trust in our police force. Yeah, why give an exemption to police officers when all other county, state, public employees uh, do not have this exemption? So now it's an equal playing field. Right. So now we just wait to see what the governor does, if he's going to sign it. Right. Any indication? Yeah, he's got some time. Uh, No, I don't see why he'd oppose it. The, the, The votes were pretty strong uh, in both the House and the Senate, large majorities. But, of course, I'm sure Shopo hasn't given up. Now, I know there are lots of other things going on. I think this week they're talking about uh, the red light cams. I know also there were a number of uh, confirmation hearings and a couple of the governor's administrators are in trouble. Yeah, it was was quite a development yesterday. Rona Suzuki, she heads the tax department. Well, the Ways and Means Committee in the Senate voted six to six. In other words, they couldn't agree on whether she should be confirmed by the full Senate. And then Craig Harai, the budget and finance director for the governor, that was a seven to four vote against the full Senate will be voting on those nominations. Uh, But that's a pretty big blow. That's a sign of no confidence on the part of the Senate, Ways and Means anyway in the EGA administration. And as Blaze Lovell wrote in his story, this really um, illustrates there's this tension that is going on between the EGA administration and the Senate, all playing out as the state is facing this enormous financial situation that's only getting worse because of COVID-19. 
Yes, and uh, you know, uh, with all the things that the legislators are dealing with, we have to make mention that uh, today they also paid respects to uh, Senator um, Breen Harimoto, who passed. Good man. He died last month at age 66 of pancreatic cancer. He'd been fighting that for a long time. In fact, that memorial service is happening uh, just as we speak at the, at the Senate. A lot of folks in attendance. Uh, a good man gone and uh, quite a week for the legislature. Yeah, it is, uh, it is always sad when we have these sessions and we lose a lawmaker uh, while in office. But thank you so much, Chad. Sure, Catherine. That was Civil Beach Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read all the legislative stories online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from BIA Hawaii, offering the training course Construction Safety Trenching and Excavation Live Online, classes beginning July 10th. Registration and more information at biahawaii.org. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. We kicked off this morning's Backyard Quiz asking what Hollywood talents uh, Bette Midler, Kelly Hu, and Janelle Parrish have in common. The answer, they were all born and raised in Honolulu. We then asked you for the name of another Honolulu-born actress who attended Mililaniwa'ena Elementary, Wheeler Intermediate, and Mililani High School. She graduated in 1997 and originally planned to study veterinary sciences in college. Due to financial hardship, she put off school and pursued modeling in Asia instead. She, went, uh, she first went to Japan, then Taiwan, and finally Hong Kong. Her appearance on the TV drama House of the Dragon raised her public image, and studios took notice. And after appearing in Cantonese films, Hollywood came calling, and she was cast in Live Free or Die Hard and Mission Impossible 3. Interestingly enough, because Asian audiences had a hard time pronouncing her last name, Margaret Quigley became Maggie Q. And that's how this Oahu native is known for all her creative work, including the series Nikita and Designated Survivor. Congratulations to our winner, Jennifer uh, from Honolulu. She apparently had the fastest fingers. We had lots of people call in, a very popular quiz. But she shares that her husband was a small kid time friends with Maggie Q, her sisters, and her family. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, the House Finance Committee recently voted to preserve funding for the state's only work release program for female inmates at the YWCA Fernhurst. Well, the planned closure of the program was initially explained as a cost-cutting measure by the State Department of Public Safety. Critics of the move were quick to point out that the individual cost of enrolling inmates in the program amounts to less than what it would take to incarcerate them in the first place. A petition to uh, halt the closure quickly gained over 150,000 signatures, and advocates of the criminal justice reform here in Hawaii are reviewing the reversal as part of a larger reexamination of the criminal justice system across the country. Monica Espatia is one such advocate and the head of the ACLU Hawaii Smart Justice Campaign. She spoke with the Conversations Harrison Patino about justice and reform here in Hawaii. I think that it had been coming for a while is my understanding. And the response to it, you know, as an advocate, I was very pleased that so many people jumped to the defense of the program. It just goes to show that when we're pushing for one thing, to do more community work, to not have people isolated in incarceration, to have that happen, it's tone deaf and it's not really solution-based. It's not evidence-based. 
Do you think the reaction would have been what it was had we not been in this current uproar of cries for reform for our justice system? I would like to think so because the program has been around for so long and I think a lot of people knew about it, but I don't really know. I think that everything that's been happening in the past couple months has definitely awakened a lot of people, has opened up a lot of people's eyes. One of the key aspects of the story that critics of the decision really zeroed in on was that the cost of the enrollment of these inmates into these work release programs actually cost less to incarcerate them in the first place, yet the planned closure was initially explained as a cost-cutting measure. It seems a little bit weird that our institutions that are responsible for criminal reform sort of have this shaky ground on which they're justifying these positions to shut down criminal reform programs. It's actually very worrisome. Um, in 2017, Hawaii spent $255 million of its general fund on corrections. That's $255 million to house about 5,500 people. And if you think about it, the way that they're housing them and the things that they're, well, they're, that they're not offering incarceration, people, the recidivism rates are super high, between 50 and 60%. Burnhurst has a success rate of 85%. So when you look at it in long term, it makes zero sense. It really makes no sense because you're, you're putting people in a system that they're going to come out. Chances are is that they're going to reoffend again as opposed to a program that has such a high success rate. It boggles the mind. There was pretty swift backlash when the closure was initially announced. Do you think we're seeing a really serious groundswell of a more favorable public opinion with regards to criminal justice reform programs, not just here in Hawaii, but across the nation? I believe so. I think that people really are opening their eyes. I think that people are tired of these tough-on-crime policies that are not working. I just mentioned the recidivism rate. I think people are starting to understand that you can't, you know, cut funding for schools and for housing and for mental health and invest those in incarceration and that's going to work. People are seeing that that we're locking up people who don't need to be there. We're seeing that we are criminalizing poverty, that we're not addressing the root cause of these issues. I think that, you know, as an advocate who's been doing this for a while, it's refreshing and it gives me a lot of hope. But I think people are starting to see, and I think some of it has to do with the policing, with the smartphones. And I think seeing the actual numbers, $255 million to incarcerate people, and they're not coming out better. We're not helping our communities. Well, you see, you talk about those root causes that create this criminal behavior. I mean, what are those root causes? You look at things like poverty, mental health support, addiction, school. We know that different schools are funded differently. A lot of the root causes of criminal behavior are things like isolation, shame, exposure to violence. And then if we don't address those things in the community, and we, and we, we should be doing that, right? Like a lot of times people can't even get help or people can't even get clean until they're too far gone. And so if we had those kinds of services available, if those services were funded, a lot of people almost look at incarceration as a way to help their family members. And that's a really sad state of affairs, right? When you're hoping that your loved one goes away so maybe they can get some help. And we know that once they go away, they don't get help. Right? They're housed in these super inhumane conditions. These are all things that come into play. Now, you're the head of the ACLU's Smart Justice Program. In your own words, how exactly would you describe the concept of smart justice? The Smart Justice Campaign is a part of a national initiative to decarcerate the nation and Hawaii by 50% while combating the racial disparities in the system. So that means that we recognize far too many people in the U.S., namely black, brown, indigenous people, and in Hawaii this means Kanaka Maoli and Pacifica peoples are disproportionately policed, arrested, and incarcerated. And our campaign seeks to empower people who have been directly impacted. Smart justice is providing evidence-based solutions to societal ills. Smart justice is not incarcerating more and more people. Smart justice is not criminalizing poverty. Smart justice are not these tough-on-crime solutions from the 80s that are really not solutions. Smart justice is people-based, is really seeing like what the community needs and addressing those needs. So from what you've seen, how has Hawaii taken to implementing smart justice in the current day? Is it working? It's not doing great. You know, it's really sad because I feel like we've had a lot of reports come out. We had the OHA report back in, was it 2010, 2011? We had the HCR 85 report that came out last year. 
that was how to do criminal justice better. The legislature has asked for these reports. They've been produced. It has provided recommendations, and then we don't follow the recommendations. In terms of, you know, we've had to file so many suits going back to the 80s, and we're still over-incarcerating. Our jails and prisons are still overpopulated. Those things cause harm to the people incarcerated, to the families, to the communities. And so I still think that when you hear prosecutors talk about on crime, that it's not helpful. We need diversion. We need community-based solutions. And I think that we have the roadmap. We just need the will of the people and of the powers that be. To what extent do you see the addressing of serious criminal reform, maybe even smart justice, as a factor in this upcoming prosecutor's race? For us, it's a big public education push. The prosecutor race is one of the things that people can actually vote to change. Sometimes when we're asking for reform and we're asking that money be allocated from incarceration to say a program like Fernhurst, sometimes people feel like they can't really be a part of that process, even though we've seen obviously that they can be. But with the prosecutor race, that's a vote. Like you elect the person who is going to take that job. And so what we're hoping is to educate the public on what the prosecutors do. We're hoping that people will look at the different candidates and say, like, this is a person that represents my values, that represents the way that I think things should run. Now, going back to the YWCA Fernhurst program, it got a save at the last moment with funding from the Finance Committee in the House. But do you think that in the future, these sort of work release programs are going to be possibly even have a, a threat of taking their funding away again? I think so, until the powers that be change their minds. But like I think that you just brought up, there seems there does seem to be a swell. People seem to be opening their eyes and maybe just paying a little more attention of where the money's going or the things that we can do. Like we know strong families and vibrant neighborhoods are the foundation of safe communities. I think people are starting to understand that we need to reduce mass incarceration and reinvest those savings into alternatives. And so I do think that they will still be under attack. Look how hard we had to fight for a program that we knew was successful. While the fight was good and it's sad that we have to fight for these things, we should all agree that programs such as Fernhood should just be protected and they should look to see how we can expand those programs, how we should reduce incarceration. We hope that whoever is elected as prosecutor, that's something that they can speak to, right? Like I'm an advocate, so of course I'm going to talk about certain things about alternatives to incarceration, about a smarter way of doing things. But if a prosecutor says it, or any public official, quite frankly, I think people will listen. They have the power to change it. That was Monica Espatia of the ACLU Smart Justice Campaign, speaking with the Conversations Harrison Patino. We should add that the half a dozen clients of the program have since been returned to the YWCA. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we look at the snapshot of those waiting to become naturalized U.S. citizens and to get the rights that come along with it. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.